Today we hear one of those parables that, I don't know, to me kind of reads like a classic revenge movie script. I'm not quite sure if I should be into those things, <laughs> but I like them. I think The Punisher, John Wick, or one of my favorites, Gladiator. You know, one day everything is bright and sunny, but very quickly takes a turn for the worse. Things happen. Someone's friends and family are abused, neglected, murdered. And then the rest of the movie portrays the lengths that this person goes to bring about vigilante justice. And it's true, this parable is about justice, not necessarily vengeance. But as true justice would demand, this story doesn't end with destruction and devastation only. Rather, it ends with one of the greatest construction projects of all time. To get into this parable, we need to frame it out a bit, get some context. Think about this. Earlier in this gospel, Jesus and his disciples have traveled to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. In fact, it's near the time where we celebrate Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He's hailed as a king by some of the people there, but a blasphemer and false prophet by others. Well, the next day, Mark tells us that Jesus comes back into Jerusalem and goes to the temple. And once Jesus is there, another famous story, Jesus begins to overturn the money changer tables. He drives out those who are selling in the temple. He cleanses the temple of these dishonest practices. And he says, my father's house should be a house of prayer. And yet you have made it into a den of robbers. And here we discover that the chief priests and the Pharisees, as they witness this, begin to seek a way to destroy Jesus. Now, they weren't necessarily concerned with what Jesus was saying about prayer. Rather, they were, they were thinking about what they were about to lose economically. And Jesus, Jesus was astonishing the people by what he taught and winning the crowd over by who he was. Because what he brought was something they had never heard before. As it turns out, they had never heard this before because they were being taught by corrupt leaders. Well, the next day, Mark tells us, Jesus comes back to the temple, and here the religious leaders confront him, and they ask Jesus, by what authority do you come in here and teach what you teach? One of Jesus' classic moves is to <laughs> answer a question with a question, and so Jesus stumps them with a question of his own. He asks, you know John the Baptist, by what authority did he baptize all those years ago? And this stumps them. They, they couldn't answer. Or perhaps they refused to answer for fear of looking back. And so Jesus tells them, since you can't answer me, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, funny enough, Jesus does actually go on to answer their question, only it's hidden in the parable, the parable of the tenant farmers that we heard read. And fascinating, this parable isn't necessarily new. A good student of the Word of God would have heard Jesus' story and say, you know what? I've heard that before. <laughs> we heard the New Testament version of this parable read just a moment ago. Now listen to the Old Testament version from Isaiah chapter 5, 1-7. And hopefully it adds a little more flavor to what we've already heard. Let me sing for my beloved, 
my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Yet when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? So let's work through the parable of the tenant farmers in light of this song from Isaiah as well. So Jesus begins his parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And a slight divergence from the story earlier, leased it to tenants, and then he went away into another country. So here we see that, that it's God who establishes this vineyard, which we know from Isaiah is Israel, God's people. God made them a people. He gave them an identity that's found in him, and they were protected in him, and they were fruitful and blessed by God. And as God loves his people, he, he gave them prophets and judges and later kings and now religious leaders, all to care for and to teach and to preach God's words and commands to his people, to remind them that they are indeed the chosen of God, his choice vine, one in which God intends to find good grapes growing. Well, Jesus continues. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. You know, if you look back at the Old Testament, the stories we find there of the people are a repetitive cycle of rebellion and the unbelievable grace God gives them. God's people only seem to yield wild grapes, not the good ones God expects. The people turn away from God. They fall into sin. God sends a prophet to bring them back. The people go and they mingle with idol worshipers and marry them, even though God told them not to. And they fall into grave sin and sinful practices and they forget God. So God sends a judge to bring them back. The people look out. They see the riches of other nations and they want a king to rule over them, just like the other nations. And God says, I'm your king. But in essence, they say, you're not good enough. So God says, okay, I'll give you a king, but you're not going to like it. This king will eventually be hard on you. He'll tax you. He'll recruit you into armies, make you a slave to his own purposes, and lead you away from me. And as God predicted, that's exactly what happened. So God sends more prophets to discipline the people, 
so that they might repent and turn back to God. And on and on and on it goes. The parable continues. And he sent another, another servant, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, you can imagine, can't you, the sheer joy of being a prophet. (laughs) Being called by God to go and speak the truth to an entire nation. You are all in sin. You have all turned your back on God. You've rejected his commands and worse, forgot his promises. You have not believed in God. Now repent. Sounds like a good time, right? Not an easy job for sure. Although this prophet came and spoke God's truth, no one listened. No one sits around going, you know what, please, point out all of my flaws. I'd love to hear them. But the sad truth is that our sins become more important to us than God's truth. We love our sins. We love to be right. We don't want to be told that we're wrong. And so even though we are steeped in sin, we do what we can do to shut that truth teller up because we don't want to hear it. We want to live life on our own terms. We would go so far as to even put them to death. Well, the parable continues. This owner still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. You can imagine this. The owner of the vineyard thinks, even though they have mistreated and killed and put to shame all of these servants that I've sent, certainly, certainly they're going to treat my son differently, right? After all, he is my son. Surely they're going to respect me enough to listen to him. But that's not how the story goes. But those tenants said to one another, Ah, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, up until this point in the story, the owner of the vineyard has been, well, pretty patient with these wicked servants. It goes beyond our understanding how patient he is. Time and time again, he sends people over and over again, and they treat them the same. But this is precisely how God treats us and his people from the beginning of time, with patience. Yep, we experience consequences for our sins, And we even see God exacting justice for sin in other stories of the Old Testament. But the final judgment, the one that will ultimately destroy sin forever and cast sinners out, that time has been reserved until the time God decides. And Jesus in this parable is saying that, well, that time is coming soon. Because now with the arrival of of Jesus. God has sent his son, his only son whom he loves. This son has come to his own people, to his own vineyard. And what did the people do? 
They reject him, and they kill him. So Jesus asks those listening this question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? I'm sure you have an answer. I mean, you know the story. What would you do? In Mark's version and in Luke's, Jesus asks this question kind of rhetorically and then gives the answer. In Matthew's account of the same parable, Jesus asks these religious leaders directly and they answer. Nevertheless, the answer is the same. The owner of the vineyard will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others who will take care of it. Now, I think we would probably all agree that, that that's justice. But for whom? Who wins? Who really is the victim and, and who is the offender? Well, clearly, the owner of the vineyard, his servants, and his son are the victims. And these wicked tenants are the offenders. But the owner in this parable has still lost his son, which doesn't seem just. But in a less obvious way, if we think about Isaiah's poem, the victim here could also be Israel, God's people. And the offenders are those who lead God's people astray. You know, in many ways, the harshest words that Jesus ever says and the most extreme criticism he gives is directed toward religious leaders. That's right, pastors, if you will. Those who have called to know and to teach and to proclaim the truth of the good news of God, but instead have preached their own agenda, their own truth or version of the truth. And in doing that, in keeping back the gospel, they have held people captive to the chains of the law and not led them to the freedom of the gospel. These religious leaders, these Pharisees, they sat in a pretty coveted and prestigious seat. I mean, people would listen to them. And they got to enjoy expensive things. They had the admiration of the people. Not necessarily because they were nice guys, but because they were in the position of God to the people. They were the gateway. They gave the sermons. They brought the word. They enforced the rules. And they enjoyed luxury at the expense of others. But at the heart of it all, what they really did was keep people from God. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, he's a threat to their prestigious status. Their egos were bigger than their concern or love for God's people. And so they sought to put Jesus to death because he was a roadblock to their way of life. He was a stumbling block to their blind adherence to the law. Their faith was not in God, but in their own ability to keep the law. And in thinking this way, they were blinded to their own sin. You know, Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they parade around with the appearance of piety and righteousness, but on the inside, what was really in their hearts is only the stench of death. And so they reject Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, they reject God. And it seems by the end of this parable, they knew exactly what Jesus means. 
the very last phrase of the parable, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that Jesus had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now, let me go to the extreme first. This is the stark reality. Yes, God is patient. And in his patience, he pursues you and all people. And he provides. And we know that the salvation that Christ offers from the cross is free to everyone who would receive it by faith. But there will come a time when it's too late. In the church, this question is wrapped up in what we call eschatology. It's a a study or a look at the end times. What's going to happen when Jesus returns? At some point, he's going to. And what is he going to find when he does? Because now the vineyard has been left to new tenants. And you and I are called to point others to Christ, to point others to his death and his resurrection for their salvation. There's going to come a day of judgment to that point in time when you will be sorted. And you will either choose to stand before God on your own two feet and make a case on the merits of your own righteousness for your salvation, or you're going to fall down on your face and confess your unworthiness. Now, if you choose to stand on your own and make a case for yourself, what you're really doing is rejecting the Son and the grace that God offers through Him. You're saying Christ died needlessly. And if you say that, if you believe that, you will receive precisely what you ask for. You will fall down, you'll be on your own, and you'll be away from God. But if you trust in the Son and His work, if you appeal to the promise God makes That at the right time, Christ died for me, a sinner. If you confess that to be true, then God is going to lift you up to your feet and welcome you home. Because we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, who freely gives his life for yours and who rises from the dead to assure us that his promises are real. And just like that time is going to be, this parable doesn't end with destruction. That's not the end of our story. Rather, it ends with the beginning of the greatest construction project of all time. Listen to Jesus at the heart of this parable. He says, Have you not read the Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is calling the people to think back to Psalm 118, which, by the way, I highly recommend you go and read. Psalm 18 begins and ends the same way. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. And the psalm goes on to talk about the evil that surrounds us, but that by God's grace we are saved. Now, interestingly, we we mentioned Palm Sunday before. Psalm 118, verse 26, says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We recognize that as a Palm Sunday praise chant. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
comes in the name of the Lord to rescue his people. But he's also the stone rejected. Rejected by his own people. By Israel's own religious leaders. As Jesus enters the city, they cry out for his blood. And they have it. They strike down the Son of God, thinking they are carrying out God's justice. And in a way, they are. Because it's by his blood shed that prepares the soil of the garden. It's his body planted in the ground that becomes the righteous vine. It's his glorious resurrection by which we have life and are now justified and declared righteous. The son has died, but, but has returned. Jesus himself is the cornerstone, the foundation of a new Israel, a new people, a new nation, a new vineyard. Listen to how Peter describes this new life in the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 2, 4-10. He writes, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious, you also, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood in order to bring spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it says in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who believes in him will certainly not be put to shame. Therefore, for you who believe, this is an honor. But for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone over which they stumble, and a rock over which they fall. Because they continue to disobey the word, they stumble over it. And that is the consequence appointed for them. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people who are God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. At one time you were not a people but now you are the people of God. At one time you were not shown mercy, but now you have been shown mercy. Friends, you are firmly built on the cornerstone, God's Son, our Savior. And may you bear fruit in the kingdom of God, fruit that feeds and leads others to Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. Amen.